Mark 13, we have a whole chapter to get through this morning, so I'm going to try to get into this as quick as we can because we got a lot of ground to cover, um, and it will be a lot to mentally take in, and so I want to be as uh, careful and give it the time and attention it deserves. So uh, Mark 13, if you don't have a Bible, we got some extras on the back table here. If you don't have a note sheet, we have some extras on that back table there as well, so make sure that you uh, grab one of those uh, so you can follow along with us this morning. As we look at Mark 13. So uh, because we are tackling such a big section and we have such a lot of ground to cover, we're not going to read the entire thing at the beginning. We're just going to go through a few sections, but I will read through uh, most of the chapter this morning as we study it together. Uh, so go ahead and stand and we're going to read from Mark chapter 13 and I'm going to look at verses 1 through 4. To start, and then we're going to jump down to verse 33. So we're going to kind of tackle the beginning and the end of this, starting in Mark 13, starting in verse 1. And as he, that's Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And jumping down to verse 32. Let's go to verse 32. Jesus says this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Go ahead and have a seat and let's pray as we ask God uh, for his favor and his wisdom on our time this morning. So. Uh, Father, we come exactly to do that now. We come to just ask for wisdom. This is a, uh, a large passage for us to tackle. It has a lot of intricate details, a lot of things that can be uh, not only confusing, uh, but also, Lord, just distracting. And so in the midst of uh, all the details, uh, my, my prayer this morning is that you would help us to know how we need to respond right now as faithful citizens whose uh, citizenship is in heaven, and yet you have called us still to live in this sinful world. So um, give us much grace as we study this morning. Help us to be uh, just faithful to you and in our time of reflection. So uh, we entrust our time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are picking up on our study from last week. So if you remember... Uh, over the last two chapters, Jesus has been in the temple. He's been kind of duking it out with the religious leaders, kind of really trying to expose the, uh, the, the dangers of the way that they are leading the nation, how they had really uh, turned so much of the religious establishment uh, into something that is really uh, beautiful, it looks like, on the outside, and yet on the inside is corrupt and really has no heart for God, and that was illustrated. We kind of looked at last week. Uh, we we went into the first two verses here of chapter thirteen, where they come out of the temple. Right, they finally uh, leave after a really long day of teaching and instruction. And on the way out, uh, we see the disciples drawing Jesus's attention. They say, "Well, you know what? It, it's not all as bad because look at this temple. After all, I mean, this thing is." Awesome! This thing is beautiful. What beautiful stones. What beautiful craftsmanship, right? At least we have a really nice temple. And what Jesus says is, you see this temple? You see this magnificent structure? It's going to be destroyed. 
Not a single stone is going to be left on top of the other. A statement like that would have been a shock to the disciples on all kinds of levels. After all, this temple was huge, and its magnitude and its fame was well known in the ancient world. In fact, this would have been one of the ancient wonders of the first century. Uh, the temple uh, platform, this area where this whole temple structure was in its entirety, would have been somewhat like 500 meters long by 300 meters wide. I mean, that is a huge scope. You think about your uh, normal uh, like uh, sports complex. That's kind of what it's talking about there. Some stones that were on this uh, temple, we learned from one of the first century historians, could have been anywhere around 67 feet long. You think about a piece of stone that's 60 feet in length. I mean, and this is before Caterpillar was established and had all of its equipment to move stuff around. I mean, this thing was magnificent. It had 162 columns standing 45 feet tall. The walls were covered in gold plates. There was a rabbinic proverb of the first century that said, He who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. This was the golden standard. And so to, for Jesus to say that this structure that identified it was the heart of the religious people, the Jewish identity really was attached to this building and all of its beauty and all of its magnificence, it would have been a shock for them to hear that it would be destroyed. But such an event even signaled something much bigger to the disciples because it seemed to signal the end of the world as they knew it, right? For this thing to be destroyed would have been to them like their worlds were ending. And so naturally, Jesus' statement raises just a couple questions in their mind as you would expect it would. And in verses 3 to 4, we find four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, going to Jesus as he sits on the Mount of Olives, which was this uh, high hillside that was to the east of the city that looked directly at the temple. It would have been easy to see right in his perspective. He's sitting there, and they come up to him. And not surprisingly, their question is, When? I mean, Jesus, you kind of just dropped a bomb on us by saying that this structure is going to be destroyed. When is this going to take place, right? Verse 4, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. When will this happen? When Will there be any signs to help us know that it's getting close? Matthew, in his gospel account, adds a third question that they asked him. Uh, really, what are going to be the signs of the end of the age? Because they associated this with, really, the end of the world. And Jesus' words that follow, I believe, are instructive, not just for his first century disciples, but for disciples even today. This is only the second long discourse that Jesus gives or that Mark gives in his entire gospel. He's, he really is more fo focused on the actions of Jesus rather than these long teaching sections. This is the only second time that he's done this in this gospel in what we call the Olivet Discourse. And in this discourse, we see Jesus graciously warn his followers to appropriately prepare for the future. Jesus graciously warns his followers to appropriately prepare for the future. I'm just going to be honest. Mark 13 is among the hardest chapters in all the New Testament to understand. There are consistencies and differences with the parallel accounts that we see in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 21, if you were to put those all side by side, you would see a lot of similarities. But then you would also see that they all record it with some different aspects as well, each kind of focusing on different things. One scholar says this, the problem is that Mark 13 contains far more puzzles than it does answers. And for us, it's kind of a question of, well, so how much of this was related to 
Jesus' first century audience, the Jews that he's talking to, to, to Peter, to Andrew, to James, to John. I mean, after all, that was their question, right? When is this going to take place? When is this destruction of the temple going to happen? And how much of it is actually related to something that's actually still really far in the future? Is there overlap? Are there similar occurrences? Has all of this actually happened or has none of it happened? And as is the case with sometimes biblical prophecy, uh, it reminds us of mountains. So I just got back yesterday from a couple days in Arizona. Beautiful, beautiful mountain ranges that surround the valley where Phoenix and Scottsdale and all those things are. And if you are to look across the valley and you were to look at these mountains, a lot of times what you see is you see uh, this beautiful range of mountains that all look like they're at the same heights. But it's only when you get closer to them that you realize, oh, this one is actually way taller because it's actually farther in the distance. It's only when you get closer that you realize, well, there's, there's distance between them. They're not all right up next to each other. And such is the case sometimes in the Bible when there are prophecies like this in Mark 13. They look like they're all happening at the same time when in reality there's actually some distance that's happening between them. But at some level, this has to relate to the question being asked by the four disciples. Jesus is not completely ignoring their question. He's not just jumping to saying, okay, well, here's all the things that are going to happen at the very end of time. He has to some degree be answering their question. But I think it's important in studying this passage, it does not mean that we have to be able to explain everything or understand all of its challenges. Rather, we must seek to explain their implications on our lives. And that's really my goal this morning, is not to try to explain away all the finer details so that you can have all your questions answered. In fact, I'll be honest with you, as I studied this this week, it started to make me wrestle with questions that I thought I had answered for years. And had to think about, well, how does this relate to other parts of the Bible? And I found myself going in circles. And you know what? It's okay to remain in a state of humility that says, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, one person, uh, scholar, says this. He says, the disciple is not called to eliminate his ignorance of the timing of the end. He is called to cope with it and respond to it appropriately. And so that's what we want to do this morning is we want to try our best to understand it. But even if we can't nail down all the finer details, there are still very key takeaways that we can learn from and know how to respond to. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. And so I want to begin by where I think Jesus begins, which is really answering that question of the disciples, which is what are going to be the warning signs of this destruction, right? That's what they want to know about. Uh, Jesus has told them, hey, this temple... It is going to be destroyed. One thing we do know from history is that in A.D. 70, so that would have been about roughly 40 years after this, the Roman armies, which the Roman Empire, remember, is really the one who's ruling over Israel at this time, the Roman armies march into Jerusalem and they do indeed destroy the temple. The destruction of the temple happens in 70 AD. And so that's something we know that is on the radar, that's on the clock because of history here. So what we're going to look at here, though, is what are going to be these warning signs? I think to some degree we see in verses 5 to 23, Jesus lay that out. And I will be again humble in saying that some of the things that we see here in verses 5 to 23 are actually very similar to things that we see happen in the book of Revelation that described the very end of the world as well. So I'm not here to say that all of these have already happened or that none of them have happened, but that there are often overlap and similarities to these. But I believe if Jesus is trying to truly answer the question that the disciples have, then there has to be some relation of this to their context. So what do we learn in here? Well, let's look at this explained in verses 5 to 23. Much of this section is bookended by those two commands to be on guard in verses 9 and 23. Notice Jesus says that multiple times. He says, you need to be on guard. Well, so what are the things that they are being on guard for? Well, look at verses 
5 to 6, and Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Looking at verses 5 and 6 there, what he's warning them of is saying, hey, listen, people are going to come in my name saying that I am the one who's going to rescue Israel. I'm going to be the deliverer. I'm going to be this new Messiah character. And he's saying, listen, do not pay attention to them. Okay, that is not how that's going to happen. I am not coming back until the very end, which he's going to talk about later on. But he's saying, listen, be skeptical. If anybody claims that they are this new savior, this new deliverer who's going to come to you, do not listen to them. And then in verses 7 to 8, he starts to talk about these birth pains that uh, give indication that things are somehow getting a little bit closer. He talked about wars and rumors of wars. Uh, The time around 70 AD was a very tumultuous time in the known world at that time. He says in verse 8, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, right? So there will be some desperate things going on, especially around the time of the Roman siege of Jerusalem. There were some really desperate things going on at that time, including some natural disasters, but also some severe famines, right? There were times where, and this is not actually the first time in Israel's history, but there were times where they had to result to really desperate means for food. And usually what that means is some forms of like even cannibalism, right? Like very disturbing things. And those things have happened to some degree, especially around that time. But he also talks about here in a section I think is really interesting in verses 9 through 13, he talks about persecution and global proclamation of the gospel. Listen to what he says in verses 9 to 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit's. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So a very interesting section here where he talks about this stretch of persecution and global proclamation of the gospel. Very interesting that Jesus, again, is saying this to Peter, James, John, Andrew, Because we know after Jesus departs, we are ushered into what is known as the church age. We see in the book of Acts, Jesus commissioning his disciples to now go and to take the gospel to all the nations. Well, if you were to look at the book of Acts, how does the gospel spread in the book of Acts? A lot of times it spreads through, actually, persecution. Right? It's actually the threat to Christians that allows the gospel to spread out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the ends of the known world at that time. By the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has spread all the way to Rome. Rome was kind of known as the center of the world at that time, right? That would have been considered almost to the far reaches of the world's. And so, so much of what is said here, even like standing before uh, people in in trial and in synagogues, right? And, And not knowing what to say, you see in these passages where Peter or Paul are empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak and to proclaim. And people are changed and transformed through that. It is a, a huge movement for the church. But then in verse 14, this is where it starts to change. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is kind of an interesting thing where he talks about this abomination, and the language is actually not clear whether this is talking about a person 
or a thing could be like, again, the, the Roman army itself. It's very confusing because even Luke uses this term uh, desolation in his section, but he uses it to refer to just the, uh, the, the desolation of the city of Jerusalem, not to a person, to a thing. It's also language that is used by Daniel to describe something very much futuristic. And so this is, again, where I see there could be some foreshadowing of something bigger that is still far in the future. But the idea here is still very clear. There is going to come a time when the option is no longer to stay, but to flee. And in verses 14 to 20, we see, again, very specific Jewish language that would have been uh, specific to the Jewish people back in the first century. Notice what he says of them. He says, you are to flee to the mountains. Usually, whenever there's an invading army, where do you want to go? You want to go into heavily fortified cities, right? And this is where he's saying, this is not the time to go into the fortified cities. This is the time to flee, to get out. Get as far away as you can. Let no one who is on the housetop go down to get anything in his house. Verse 16, let no one who is in the field turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women, verse 17, who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it would not happen in the winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation, tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation. Right? This is going to be a scary time for them do not stay get out as quickly as you possibly can and again he warns verses 21 to 22 be on guard for those who want to take advantage of this situation to pretend that they are some type of christ-like figure verse 21 if anyone says to you look here's the christ or look there he is do not believe it for false christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. In other words, this should not come as a surprise to you. I have told you these things. All of these very much related to a lot of things that the first century audience would have experienced around the time of the temple's destruction in 70 AD. With, again, a lot of overlap between some things that we see the Bible would talk about later on in the end as well for the Jewish people at the end of the world. But Jesus makes it very clear these warning signs are important because what he does is he illustrates this for us in verses 28 to 31. It's kind of a unique way that Mark structures this, but he illustrates this with the fig tree in verses 28 to 31. Jump down there. It says in verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as it its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So alas, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, he gives the illustration here of a fig tree. He says, when fig tree, when its branch becomes tender and it puts out its shoots, it lets you know, hey, the time for, for, for fruit is coming. In the same way, he's trying to say, hey, listen, when you start to see these warning signs, this is what is here to let you know that something is coming. The end is getting closer. But notice, he says in verse 30, and this is interesting, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The question is, which generation is he talking about there? This generation usually refers to, especially in the Gospels, to the specific generation of people at that time. So if he's talking to, to Peter and John and James and, and, and Andrew, he would be talking about their generation, a generation in that culture would have been about 40 years right so timing wise that would make sense that they would still be alive when these things are actually taking place and unfolding 
And yet, in the midst of all that, he gives them an assuring promise. He says to them, listen, heaven and earth, they may pass away, but my words will not. They will always remain true. We're going to talk about that significance more here in a little bit. But you have to ask yourself as disciples, where's the hope in all of this? <laughs> right? This still, still feels very morbid. Right? If this is talking about this destruction, there's not a whole lot of hope, a lot of happiness, all these false saviors coming in, but you're like, where is Jesus in all of this? Where's the hope of true deliverance? We've been warned not to listen to false Christs or false deceivers. So what are we waiting for? How will we know when true and ultimate deliverance has arrived? Well, Jesus is not naive to those questions, which is why he still provides that hope within this teaching, even if it's much farther off in the distance to them and possibly even still to us today. And so this is where we go to the Son of Man's return without warning. The Son of Man's uh, return without warning. This is the way he talks about in verses 24 to 27. Try to explain this to us here as quick as I can. He says in verse 24, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. I think most people, as they, they read this and they, they think about what Jesus is saying here, the, the signs that Jesus starts to talk about here in this section become much more clear because he's talking about the return of the Son of Man. And I think we see from the rest of Scripture what becomes very clear is that the return of the Son of Man marks his second coming to this earth. That is something that has not yet happened. That is something that has not yet taken place. Verse 24 describes all these cosmic signs, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, things that I don't even fully know the extent of what that would mean or what that would look like, but I know that it's pretty crazy. And all those things usually mark in the Old Testament prophecies about the end of time, all of those mark the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord to bring his ultimate and final judgment on the earth. And so within this, Jesus is still trying to provide hope for them. Hey, a day is coming where I am coming back. It may not be when you expect it or when you want it to be, especially at the time of the temple being destroyed, when you feel like the world is ending to you. But a time is fixed and it is coming when that will happen. And the Son of Man will come on the clouds with power and glory. This reminds us of how Daniel talks about this in Daniel chapter 7. This is a, a triumphant moment. This is a moment of victory. It's a moment of confidence and assurance that God has his plans in place to bring about the end. But how do we respond? Well, he illustrates this here in verses 33 to 37. Uh, really, actually, 32 to 37. But he gives this picture that we read earlier of a man who goes on a journey and he entrusts his servants to keep the house and he entrusts the doorkeeper to wait for his return. What was the command that he gives to the doorkeeper multiple times in that section? What does he say to the doorkeeper? Do you remember? Something that your teachers probably say to you all the time. What? Stay awake. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake. Why? Why is it important that he stays awake? According to that passage, why, why does he say to stay awake? What do you think? do this. Why would you say to stay awake? 
verse 35. I'm going to give you the answer right there. Verse 35. So I'm going to read it out loud. You can do this. So I'm going to read it. Verse 35. What's the answer? Why does he say stay awake? Yeah, go for it, Leah. Stay awake because you don't know. It could be at any moment. At any moment. In other words, the, 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 the job of the doorkeeper was to be there in case uh, somebody arrived at the door. It would be to keep uh, wrong people out, right? You know how this works. Maybe your parents have said, don't let strangers into the house. Don't open the door for strangers. But if you know the person, open the door to them, right? Same idea for the doorkeeper, Saying, listen, you have a job, you have a responsibility, and that is you need to watch and wait because I'm coming back. And I want you to be responsible. I want you to keep doing your duty until I return. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Lest I come suddenly and find you asleep. And we're going to talk about the, the application of that, but I think it's pretty obvious there, right? Jesus is trying to tell us, hey, listen, my coming back, it will come quickly. It will come suddenly. It'll come at a time when you are not expecting it. So therefore, your life right now, as you're waiting for my return, needs to be watchful and it needs to be waiting. And we're going to talk about what that means here as we unpack this. So as you look at a very complex chapter, you're like, okay, this is a lot of information. There's a lot of things that maybe I have questions about, and I'll, I'll, I'll say I'm there with you, right? So the last 20 minutes, here's what I want to do. I want you to understand, what do I do with this, right? You can walk away from this and just say, my head hurts, and I wouldn't blame you. But what I want you to walk away with is, what are the principles that still apply to me as a Christian right now? How can I live my life? And so here's some of the points that I think you need to ponder here this morning. And the first is this. You need to be on guard from error by knowing the truth. I think that that is very clear from this passage. Be on guard from error by knowing the truth. That was true for the disciples as Jesus warned of the impending threats concerning false teachings, false deliverers, false signs, all these things, right? This is a call, student, to prioritize knowing your Bibles better. I'm not saying that means you need to seek to understand every fine point of what happens in the future. Obviously, uh, I and others are very far from that. Almost every commentator I read this week is like, oh, there's a lot of mystery here that we're not sure of. <laughs> You're like, that makes me feel way better, right? But it is a call for you to know to the best of your abilities what the Bible says about anything or any situation. To know how to appropriately respond or what to trust. To have your senses trained to say, something smells funny about this, right? What this person said can sound really good, but there's something about it that doesn't quite seem right. Do not remain as spiritual infants who can be easily swayed by the winds of any type of spiritual teaching. The best way to do this is to know your Bibles well. And so, yes, this is, to some degree, the read your Bible more sermon, as most sermons are. It is an encouragement to study, to know it to the best of your abilities, to not be swayed by error or even the, the teachings of this world, right? That try to tell you the world's going to end by some type of, you know, zombie apocalypse. I'm sorry, if that's what you're really hoping for, that's not what's going to happen, okay? Know the truth from error. Secondly, you need to understand that true faith shines brightest under fire. True faith shines brightest under fire. It is unique how the Bible often tells of suffering and gospel advancement going hand in hand together. We wouldn't think that that would be the case, right? We would think that as uh, the threat of persecution, as uh, 
people try to silence the message of Jesus, we would think to ourselves, well, that naturally means that uh, the message is going to, to die out. It's going to fade out. And the Bible says that's actually the opposite of what happens. If you read the book of Acts, you look at the persecution of the early church. You look at Stephen, who became a martyr for the church, first church. What happens there? As a result of that, Christians in Jerusalem, what happened? They fled to surrounding regions where, guess what? The gospel gets proclaimed. You see people like Paul who go into parts of Asia Minor and into Europe. And every time he's persecuted, more people become Christians. In fact, it's interesting. In Philippians 1, we're going to look at in a few weeks in main service, he says, my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel further. <laughs> right? He's sitting in a Roman prison and yet he's still able to proclaim the gospel and people are becoming Christians and they're spreading the gospel to more influential people. Even in the Old Testament, we look at people like Daniel and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We think about Joseph. We see this all throughout the Bible so often when people think that they are silencing others, God actually uses it to spread his fame even more. God often uses fiery trials as the means to draw more people to himself. That's true of his disciples here. And again, if there is any foreshadowing of things in the final days, then gospel witness will shine bright there as well. Revelation even speaks of people coming to know the Lord in the final days when everything is just going awry. But student, for now, understand that how you respond in trial or push back from others may be your, or, or, or respond to the pushback from others, may be your most opportune time to share your faith. How you respond to them, what you say to them, is actually perhaps the most influential time that you are going to get in front of other people. After all, Light shines brightest in darkness. Jesus himself reminded us of that in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, let your light shine before men so that may, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. Right? Even in the midst of the, the sinful world that we live in, as followers who are waiting on Jesus' return, let your light shine. And let it shine with hope, Right? with assurance that you know that Jesus is coming back. Confidence there. And I think that that's kind of feeds into our third point here, that though the world is always changing, God's word never does. One of the most important lines in this entire chapter, I don't know if you caught on to it in verse 31, where Jesus says, heaven and earth, they may pass away, but my words will never pass away. This reminds us of why faith in Jesus is so important for all of us. The world and your circumstances, students, are constantly changing. It's like playing a game with little kids. If you've ever played a game with little kids and they have all these rules, by the time you feel like you understand it, they're already changing it again. You can never keep up with it. If you are setting your hope on stability in this life, student, listen, if you are trying to build your life on stability here in this world, you're going to be extremely disappointed. You're going to be extremely disappointed. There is a false narrative that we are built to believe that you can have a stable job, a stable family, a stable church life, fill in whatever you want, stable this, stable that. But the ground of this world is always changing, often due because of our own sinfulness and living in a fallen sinful world. That can be really discouraging if you have nothing to actually root your life upon that never changes. That's why the Bible tells us that God never changes. He is described throughout Scripture as a rock, stable, and can be built upon. As such, his words are firm and fixed. We can count on them. And if there's two things that remain sure from this passage, if you take anything away that you're like, I'm not sure what's going to happen based on this, know these two things. 
The coming of the Lord is certain, and it will occur someday still to come. It is coming, and it will still come. Waiting, verse 4, waiting is one of the most underrated spiritual disciplines. I bet most of you did not come in here or even... Uh, if I would have asked you what are some of the, the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, I'm willing to bet probably most of you would not have listed waiting or watchfulness as one of those spiritual disciplines. But really, this is described throughout the Bible, just we don't often realize it. But to wait on the Lord is to, to rest in Him or to trust in God's perfect timing while still maintaining our God-given responsibilities as his people. Right? So it's to, to trust in the Lord, to trust in his perfect timing, while at the same time remaining faithful. This is often related to deliverance from, from pain or hardship, oppression, right? We, we feel uh, these moments of life where things get really hard, and we, we desire some degree of relief, some degree of, of protection, some degree of deliverance from those things. And it's not wrong to pray to the Lord for those things and anticipate those things, but it's not as if you're waiting on those things and nothing else happens. Because what shows your trust and your uh, confidence in the Lord is that you hope in those things while still remaining faithful to what God has called you to do. In the context here, it has to do with waiting on the return of Christ. The element here of watching alongside waiting is important. This is where Jesus calls for us to, as we said in verses 33 to 37, stay awake. Right? So much of the Christian life can be summed up in those two words. Stay awake. If you were to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, links this type of spiritual alertness to virtues such as faith, hope, and love. I love the way that one of the commentators, Strauss, he describes this here. He says, Preparation for Christ's return is not about calculating the date of Armageddon or linking world events to the fulfillment of biblical prophecies. It is about letting our spiritual lights shine by bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Right? He's saying, listen, do not spend all your time speculating, trying to calculate, and trying to get all the details, right? Many foolish people have done that in the past. Jesus even himself says in Scripture, I don't even know the exact time of my return, right? That'll blow your mind to think about that. It says only the Father. Only the Father knows that. But what you should use your time for, let your spiritual light shine by bearing the fruit of the Spirit. After all, it's not just that we wait, it's how we wait that's important, right? And I think your parents would agree with that, right? Parents can tell the difference between good waiting and bad waiting, yeah? Yesterday we were in multiple lines at the Mesa airport to fly back here and see that with the girls, right? When you just tell them to wait patiently, right? And so they waited for sure, but you can tell whether or not that waiting was quality or not. And I'll let you know it was not quality. <laughs> it was a struggle for sure, right? And so the Lord, waiting does not mean just gritting your teeth and just bearing it and doing it with kind of a begrudging attitude, but the way you wait is important. If parents can tell the difference between good and bad waiting, you better believe that God can as well. Fifth, this might be a little surprising or struggling, but things will get worse before they get better. That was true for the disciples of Jesus' generation following Jesus didn't get easier but harder, right? I mean, think about the world they lived in. After Jesus left, did things get easier for them? No, they actually got a lot harder. Thank God he spent, uh, sent the Holy Spirit to reside in them, to empower them. But becoming a follower of Jesus became harder in that world. At the same time, Notice all the events surrounding things described a world in first century Judaism that got really 
hard. You got persecutions, you got imposters, you got false teachers, you got Roman oppression, you got famines, you got earthquakes, you got things that are, 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 are pretty rough. Everything got worse with time leading up to the demise of the temple in Jerusalem. And whether or not this has some foreshadowing of the historical future, we know from the rest of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, that things are going to get worse before they get better. We can say that with confidence right now about the trajectory of human life right now, even here in our world right now. The Bible makes it very clear that the goal of the church is not to make the world so pleasing and perfect that Jesus can now return, right? No, the world is going to be so messed up, that's why Jesus has to return. <laughs> it's kind of uh, a reminder that things have to get worse before they get better. You think about home renovation projects. Some of you maybe have done some of those before. Uh, maybe you have to gut a certain area of the house, right? Like it just, it has to kind of be torn down and, and really reshaped before it can even get better. My study of the Bible leads me and many others to believe that Jesus is not waiting on us to clean things up before he returns. We don't accelerate the timing of his return, nor do we slow it down. God's timing is fixed. He wants us to remain faithful even as the world continues towards greater sinfulness. And I just say that for your own awareness because I think that this is important for our next point here because it's to our advantage that we don't know when Jesus will return. What happens when a doorkeeper loses the expectation that his master is returning home? Based on this passage, what do we expect would happen? Falls asleep. Falls asleep on the job. In other words, he becomes useless and unfaithful. Jesus is charged to all of us. Stay awake. Let me put it this way. I thought this was interesting a few years ago is when I thought this. How would your life change if Jesus actually told you, you know what, it's going to be a really long time before I come back. In fact, it, it probably won't be in your lifetime. I, I'm really looking at maybe somewhere more closer to like the year 3000. So it's going to be really far off. So just I want you to be aware. Stay awake. Does that motivate you towards greater faithfulness right now? The answer is probably no, I would guess. Such statements are far from helpful because they remove the sense of urgency from the Christian life. Now, I don't want you to take that to mean, well, Jesus is lying here. He's just saying uh, it's actually a trick, right? Like, oh, I'm coming back soon. And now it's like 2,000 years later. And we're like, well... Obviously, he was not being truthful to that, right? Because we're working on God's clock, not our clock, right? Of course, to our clock, it feels like a really long time. To God, a thousand years are like a day to him, okay? This is no time whatsoever. I mean, think about this, student. What if your parent did this when your, your parent said, you know what, I'm going out. I want to remind you, you have uh, X number of chores that you need to do before I come home. Um, but I don't know, it's probably going to be a few days or a few weeks before we come back, right? Is your sense of urgency going to be to get to those things right away? No, you're, you're going to be like, oh man, look, I got all this time to chill, got some extra Xbox time, I can binge watch that show that I've been really wanting to watch, right? That doesn't motivate you. But if your parent says, hey, I'm going out, I'll be back soon, and you need to make sure you have these things done, going to maybe change the way that you perceive it. At least I hope it would. Maybe for some of you it wouldn't. Some of you are probably like, what? But so often we think to ourselves, if Jesus isn't coming back very soon, I can slow it down, ease up on this whole religious thing. I can take a spiritual nap. But Jesus loves us enough to help us to stay watchful in this world that is already seeking to distract you. Which leads us finally to our last point. That we need to remind ourselves and we need to bank on this student. 
Jesus will win in the end. I often fear that our Christian witness in this world is damaged because we live and we act like victory depends on us. That somehow we gotta we gotta reestablish the right policies, we gotta set up the right Christian leaders in society, we gotta assure Christ's kingdom virtues are 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 preserved as long as possible. And I want to be very clear, I support all those things. I don't want you to think for a second that I don't agree with that type of thinking. The problem is how hard we fight for such things or how we react when those things don't happen. Suddenly we act to ourselves, the world is coming to an end. Sin is obviously winning. That shouldn't surprise us based on the previous points that we've talked about. And when we live this way, we live like the disciples up to this point in Jesus' ministry. How often did they think to themselves, oh, Jesus is going to bring the kingdom now. Jesus is going to establish the kingdom now. We're going to be part of this kingdom right now. But when we hold in balance the previous two points, to be watchful and waiting while the world still gets worse, we communicate to everyone that our trust is ultimately in Jesus. Why? Because we know the final chapter. Jesus has allowed you to know the playbook where you can go to the end. You know how the story already ends. And the end of the story makes it very clear. Jesus wins in the end. Sure, it might be messy. It might not be the way that we would think it would be. But we can have that assurance based on what he said before. My words will never pass away. That promise that I've made that I will come back. I will reestablish righteousness. I will rule and reign in victory. We can bank on that truth. I've noticed the the language in athletics or even in music, that term when you look at somebody who is really good at what they do to a point where it seems effortless, sometimes there's the, the question of, are they being cocky or are they being confident? When I look at this passage this morning, I want all of us to be able to walk away living life confidently because you know what plays out in the end. You know how the story ends. So no matter what you face, no matter what you encounter, no matter how the world reacts to you or to Christianity, you have the assurance and you have the confidence. Jesus wins. He's coming back. And I can rest in that. God, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the privilege to to study it together. And I pray uh, more than anything along uh, what we talked about early on, that we would walk away with this, not trying to answer every fine detail to know all the intricacies, but that we would know, Lord, ultimately how we can respond and live faithfully and confidently as your chosen ones here on this earth. So thank you for giving us the hope of your coming and your return. Help us all to stay awake, to stay watchful, and waiting in anticipation of you bringing your final kingdom one day to this earth. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.